let me ask you a serious, serious question. Do you think that Jesus was a doormat? Somebody, as I mentioned last time, someone once asked me that provocative question. Where is the line between being a doormat and being like Christ? And I'd often pondered and prayed about that question as I told you. And in that moment, in that moment, God gave me an answer for him, the answer I'd been seeking for for years. And I told you last week that I would give you that answer today. The problem is, I think that I may have set myself up because now you're probably expecting this mind-altering, heart-staggering, never-before-heard-of response so profound with significance that it oozes with unmatched wisdom. Well, I've come to accept the fact that you may well walk away disappointed. Yet before I give you my answer, I want to tell you a story an incomprehensible story. The story that Mark Buchanan actually wrote about, a pastor, a one-time pastor in Vancouver, a great writer, about uh, somebody in his church. Gordon, he said, is from Canada, and his wife, Regine, originally from Rwanda. And she survived barely the genocide of 1994. And she lost many loved ones in that Holocaust, but, uh, and those who were easy for her to love, family, family members, friends. And for several months, she was a fugitive in her own land. She scavenged, she hid in the shadows, she slept in caves, and she was running, always running. And finally, she got out. And she came to Canada as a refugee, and she met Gordon, and they fell in love, and they married. And then, breathtaking as this sounds, they went back to Rwanda, her homeland. And she returned there not to take vengeance, but to help others heal. Regine became a Christian during the genocide when all she had was her sister's Bible. And that Bible was bread and water and air to her, the air that she breathed, really. And through it, she met Jesus. She met the one who claimed her and healed her by his love. And then gave her and her husband Gordon a commission to freely give what she'd freely received. Love, Jesus said, as I have loved you. So in a letter, her brother, Innocent, summed up just how costly such love is. Innocent is now a schoolteacher in Rwanda. It wasn't long ago that these children's parents were wielding clubs and machetes, slaughtering neighbors without mercy. It's hard, Innocent writes, to love the children of those who tried to kill you. But he does, and Regine does, and they have discovered a peace and joy in Christ that is not from this world. It overcomes this world. Christ pours into them his agape love and then draws out of them acts of unprovoked love. Like the story Regine told me one day, Buchanan writes, her voice was quiet, light, and musical as though she was merely recounting a family vacation. She said a woman's only son was killed. She was consumed with grief and hate and bitterness. God, she prayed, reveal to me my son's killer. 
And one night she dreamed that she was going to heaven. But there was a complication in this journey. In order for her to get to heaven, she had to pass through a certain house. And she had to walk down the street, enter the house through the front door, and go through its rooms up the stairs and exit that house through the back door. And she asked God whose house this was. It's the house, God told her, of your son's killer. The road to heaven passed through the house of her enemy. Two nights later, this is not a dream anymore. Two nights later, there was a knock at her door. And she opened it, and there stood a young man. He was about her son's age. Yes, she said, and he hesitated. And then he said, I am the one who killed your son. And since that day, I have had no life, no peace, and here I am. I'm placing my life in your hands. Kill me because I'm dead already. Throw me in jail because I'm in prison already. Torture me because I am in torment already. Do with me as you wish. The woman had prayed for this day, and now it had arrived, and she didn't know what to do. She found to her own surprise that she did not want to kill the man or throw him in jail or torture him. In that moment of reckoning, she found that the only thing she wanted was a son. I ask this of you, she said, come into my home and live with me. Eat the food I would have prepared for my son, wear the clothes I would have made for my son, become the son I had lost. And so he did. You see, Buchanan says, agape lovers do what God himself has done. Making sons and daughters out of bitter enemies, feeding and clothing them, blazing a trail to heaven straight through their houses, you see, Paul writes, at just the right time, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his only son. That's what Romans chapter 5 says. Know this, friends, this morning, that Jesus Christ gave his life for you and for me. He laid down his rights. His right to the throne, his right to wield the same power that called the universe into being, his right to silence his accusers and avenge the severe injustice being done to him, his right to judge, condemn as guilty, and sentence to death all who sinned against him. He laid those rights down, rights that were well within his authority to enforce, rights that were well within his reach to impose. He laid them down willingly, graciously, unflinchingly, totally, and intentionally. What do you think? Doormat? Where is the line between being a doormat 
and being like Christ. Outwardly, the two look almost identical. If you love your enemy, bless those that persecute you and do not curse them. If you pray for them, submit to them. And if you attempt, so far as it depends on you, to live and remain in peace with them, if you feed them, if you give them a drink and lend to them, if when they backhand you on your right cheek, you turn and offer them your left, if when they sue you and take your shirt, you give them your coat as well, if when they force you to go a mile with them and beyond everyone's wildest imagination, you go with them too, If they slander you as evildoers and you persist in living a moral and ethical life before them anyway, if your husband isn't living as a follower of Christ and yet you continue to honor your marriage before the Lord by being respectful and not resentful, if your wife goes astray and you go after her in an attempt to be reconciled and restored because she is your wife by covenant, if you serve the ungrateful, help the uncaring, embrace the unlovable, and if you continue to forgive people when they sin against you five, six, seven, or 70 times seven in one day, if you finally land in the hospital or even if you land in the grave because you work toward peace, I guarantee you that people will raise their eyebrows, regard you as weak, think of you as pathetic, talk about you behind their back, roll their eyes at the mention of your name. And by the way, these are your family and friends. You will be mocked. You will be made fun of. You will be used. You will be abused and forsaken. If you do all of these things, make no mistake about it, you will look like a doormat. But you will be far from one and you will be in good company. For such was the life of the Lamb of God who was led to slaughter and did not open his mouth. So where is the line between being a doormat and being like Christ? Well, let me tell you this. It's more than a line. It's a great divide There's a grand canyon of difference between those two things. The difference between being a doormat and being like Christ is defined by what is going on in you as opposed to what is being done to you. That's the answer. You see, doormats allow themselves to be walked on because they are driven by timidity, fear, and a lack of inner trust, confidence, and Security. They feel like they're out of control and they're powerless. In becoming like Christ, however, you may allow yourself to be walked on by others, but it will be the result of something far different. It will be the result of, first of all, great strength, which is the opposite of timidity. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says this, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. It will be the result of great love, which is the opposite of fear. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, 
John writes, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. And it will be the result of great trust. Great trust, which is the opposite of insecurity. Great trust in the one who is over all things and who will judge all things righteously. That's how Jesus was able to endure the harsh treatment that he received because what was happening in him far outweighed what was happening to him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 begins this way. If you suffer for doing what is right and are patient beneath the blows, God is pleased with you. This suffering is all part of what God has called you to do because you're imitating Christ who suffered for you and he is your example. Follow in his steps, Peter writes. He never sinned and he never deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted. When he suffered, he did not threaten to get even. He left his case in the hands of his father, God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried away our sins in his own body on the cross so we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. Amen? The manner in which Jesus lived out the events comprising the last week of his life paint the picture of all that Paul outlines in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, if you want to turn there. Let's refamiliarize ourselves with these verses Paul writes in Romans 12, 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Think now as I read these verses, picture Christ. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He refused to retaliate when wrong. He resolved to reflect what was right. Jesus was resigned to restore relationships through peace. He, he, for his part, was at peace with all men, even in the face of the harshest opposition. He chose to submit himself, as I referenced last time, to the worst of these. And you know what? It cost him. It cost him, it cost him his life. And if we're going to be like Christ, let me tell you, it will cost us as well. Peacemaking is costly business. As I said last week, people will take advantage of you. They will exploit your good heart. They will use you, and then they will turn on you, and they will emotionally crucify you. You will look like a doormat to the world and sometimes even to the church and everyone else around you as well. But when you know you have the power of Christ raging in your soul and you are entrusting yourself to the one who judges righteously, who cares what everybody else thinks? You're not driven 
by timidity, fear, or insecurity. You're being compelled and you're being controlled by love, love that is without hypocrisy, the love of Christ, and that makes all the difference in the world and it makes all the difference to the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says, whatever we do, it is because Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for everyone, we also believe that we have all died to the old life we used to live. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live to please themselves. Instead, they will live to please Christ who died and was raised for them. Earlier in this series, I suggested that this kind of love can best be described in one author's words as unprovoked, unprovoked love. But as that same author explains, he says that's only half true. In God, it is unprovoked, but in us, it is provoked. It's provoked by God in us. God sparks it, God fuels it, God stokes it. This is love, John says, that not that we loved God, but that he loved us. The love of Christ, Paul says, compels us. That's provoked by Christ. There are some ways we will never become agape-type lovers. We won't get there by trying harder. We won't get there by reading more books. We won't get there by honing up on our technique. We won't get there by feeding our guilt, and we certainly won't get there through fear. Because fear has to do with judgment. Fear has to do with the sense that I don't measure up, that I'm not good enough, I'm not loved. If you knew me, you'd reject me. And when we fear that way, we become evasive and defensive and aggressive, don't we? We want to settle scores. We're easily threatened. We're open prey to envy and to pride and to greed. We spend inordinate amounts of time trying to manipulate other people's perception of us. And we're so focused on us. But the more you realize how high and how deep and how wide is the love that God has for you, yes, you, the less you fear. Because love casts that out. That love, God's agape love for you, is the only thing that can provoke agape love in us toward the worst of these. And we show that not only by what we've learned so far in this passage, that by, by refusing to retaliate when we are wronged, by resolving to reflect what is right in the sight of all men, by resigning ourselves to restore relationships through peace, but also by this in verses 19 and 20, by personally relinquishing the revenge that we feel to God. Relinquish your revenge. Never, verse 19 says, take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For vengeance is his, says the Lord. This word revenge here means securing your rights or avenging yourself. What Paul advocates here strikes right at the heart of everything that we've been taught to believe in our culture. It strikes right at the heart of it. It dismantles the basic storyline of every diehard and Jason Bourne movie that you'll ever see. We don't do revenge. 
Jesus says, Paul says. Christians don't do revenge. We relinquish it to the one who will do far beyond what we can ever imagine or think. Be assured that no sinner will escape justice. Be assured they won't. God will repay evil. That's what verse 19 says at the end. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that is a quotation from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Vengeance belongs to God, and there will be a day of reckoning, folks. There will be a day of reckoning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there and follow with me on this. It's not going to be on the screen 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 to 8 says, In his justice, he will pay back those who persecute you. And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's uh, pretty blatant, isn't it? The Bible's pretty clear on the reliability of God's justice. Even in the Old Testament, Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says this, the Lord is a jealous God filled with vengeance and wrath. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and furiously destroys his enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. You see what that verse says at the end? The Lord is slow to anger, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. You know what our problem is? Our problem when we're wronged is that the Lord is slow to anger. We don't mind it when it has to do with us. Right? But when it has to do with our enemy? No. Do you question the justice of God? Are you waiting for a little payback for the things that you've suffered in your life? You're in good company. Many others centuries before you or me question God for much greater reasons than, than we have. They have longed for God to avenge their pain for greater pain than we've experienced. But do you really think you have the power? You read Habakkuk. Read Psalm 94 this week. As part of your quiet time. Psalm 37, the first three verses says this, Do not fret when wicked men seem to succeed. Do not envy evildoers, for they will quickly dry up like grass and wither away like plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is right. Settle in the land and maintain your integrity. Only God can and will right the wrongs done in this world. Only God can do it. 
He executes perfect justice where we cannot do that. We mess it all up. We get caught up in our own inflamed anger, and God is the only one who is perfect enough to punish without striking out in spite or with personal vindictiveness. He gets no satisfaction in inflicting wrath. Do you? See, we all have to admit that there are times when we would get satisfaction, wouldn't we? See, we can take two courses of action when we are unjustly treated. We can step up and fight back. That's the prideful response. Or we can stand down and let God fight. We need to leave the judgment to God. He's not going to ruin it. He's not going to botch it up in any way, shape, or form. He won't be too lenient on people. Trust me. And he won't be too harsh on people. Trust me. J.B. Phillips said it like this, never take vengeance into your own hands, my dear friends. Stand back and let God punish if he will. That's the J.B. Phillips version of verse 19. You know, a classic example of this in the Old Testament is David's refusal to kill Saul on two different occasions when it seemed as though God had delivered Saul into David's hands. Remember that? You can, you can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Actually, let me just look there for a minute. 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. Sounds like a great movie, right? And it came about afterwards that David's conscience about... Well, actually, the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hands, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose, cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly, and it came about afterwards that David's conscience bothered him. Why in the world would David's conscience bother him? So he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And he persuaded his men not to rise up against Saul and they left the cave. Look at verse 10. David said to Saul, listen, behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you into my hand. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see indeed the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. David says in verse 12, may the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. Verse 17, after David had finished speaking, Saul said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. 
You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Amazing response from the enemy. 1 Samuel chapter 26, again, Saul was given into his hand. Abishai wanted David to kill Saul, but David said, no, it's not going to happen. Again, verse 10, David says, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him or his day will come that he dies or he will go down into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. When asked when, how a man could best injure his enemy, the first century philosopher Epictetus replied this, by living the best life himself. Our motive, however, is not to bring injury to our enemy, but rather to do what is right before God. Is that right? We don't take vengeance by acting right. We just act right and leave the vengeance to God. So how are we to act if we relinquish the revenge to God? Verse 20 in Romans chapter 12 says, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Whatever. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? Feed him means to feed with morsels. In other words, we ought to be spoon-feeding the opposition with tender care. This word was used of the Greek nurses who used to first chew up the food and then feed it to infants before they had food grinders. Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him with the tender care that a nurse would feed a baby. When we actively show love toward an enemy, that in itself might shock that enemy into shame. If we claim to be Christ's followers, then we should act like Christ acted. He loved us even while we were yet sinners and gave his life for our forgiveness, didn't he? The promise is that if we forgive our enemies the way Christ forgave us, we will heap burning coals upon his head, it says in verse 20. This is a very, very difficult passage to explain. There have been many suggested meanings. None of them really are substantiated, however. One explanation speaks of a practice in ancient Egypt where a man would carry a pan of burning coals on his head to demonstrate his public shame and his repentant heart. It was very rare to even try to find an example of that. It represents his burning pain of shame and guilt, they say. Another interpretation says that the expression represents an act, of, an act of kindness by meeting a person's need. Somebody else said that really what it's getting at, it's, it's, actually, a, it's actually an act of judgment upon a person. But whatever the meaning of this quote from Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22, that's where you see it. The point Paul is making here is that showing kindness to an enemy, no matter how hostile that they become, will ultimately, ultimately do one of two things. It'll either bring him to repentance and shame him and possibly soften his heart, or God will pronounce judgment on that person if they refuse to repent. 
So to refuse to retaliate and relinquish our revenge to God is distinctively a Christian attitude. That is 180 degrees left of the world. Our society expects retaliation when people have wronged each other, right? To show love and kindness in the face of wrong not only blows people's minds, but it melts their hearts. One man put the principle in very clear words, we are not to consider what others deserve to suffer, but what we are required to do. An old English proverb says it like this, the the noblest vengeance is to forgive. That's how we will gain the win. We will overcome by refusing to retaliate when wrong, by resolving to reflect what's right, by resigning ourselves to restore relationships through peace, by relinquishing vengeance to its rightful owner, God, and but finally and ultimately, we will develop our authenticity and credibility as Christians, as Christ followers, by this final thing, by personally reversing our response to evil. Reverse your response. Look at what it says in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm convinced that the idea of overcoming evil with good never took root in men's hearts and men and women until the gospel was preached. The principle could never have been given reality until Jesus Christ epitomized it. He came, he served, he bled, he died, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father for all of us, even in the midst of a world that hated him, that hates him still. He overcame our evil with his good. And then he called us to faith and he looked us in the eyes and he said to us, Russ, follow me. And you fill your name in the blank. He looks us in the eyes and he says simply and yet authoritatively, follow me. Follow me. No human government, no man-made philosophy, no scientific formula could ever or will ever accomplish what any spirit-filled child of God can accomplish through this principle of life. Friends, we need to know that no conversion of any nation or individual will ever, ever be possible until we resolve to act on the principle that to overcome the evil is only going to happen with the good. Our credibility depends on it. William Arthur Ward once said, raised voices lower esteem. Hot tempers cool friendships. Loose tongues stretch the truth. Swelled heads shrink influence. And sharp words dull respect. Jesus says, and Paul affirms, that it's death to self that brings life to others. So how are you coping with your hurts this morning? Your bitterness, if you have any. How are you responding to those who mistreat you or are hateful toward you? Is your hate offering them any healing or offering yourself any healing? Or do you find yourself constantly miserable? 
Has resentment brought you any relief whatsoever? Has your vengeance brought your soul any victory whatsoever? How's that working for you? Imagine yourself right now standing over the corpse of the one with whom you are so bitterly at odds. Just imagine it. Now, will you then be free? You think you'll be free? Reminded of a young man who was having a significant ministry in a small English village many years ago. This account's pretty powerful. The people were coming from miles around to hear him teach the Scriptures. And in his mid-20s, he had a voracious appetite for not only teaching the Scriptures, but knowing them as well. He was making an impact in the village and surrounding area. Major impact until the charges were made. A young woman came forward and claimed that he had tried to force himself upon her sexually. The word spread like wildfire across the countryside, as, of course, it would, and he was finished. His ministry was finished. The sentiments of the people were with the young girl, and his reputation then was shot. And it was all a lie. It simply never happened. The young man struggled deeply with the betrayal of the young woman whom he had legitimately tried to help and minister to. She had turned on him and was in the process of ruining his ministry for life. He thought he'd never recover from it. How could he ever minister again anywhere with such charges as these hanging over his head? Bitterness just about overwhelmed him. The betrayal was too much. He couldn't bear it and he couldn't undo it. And he entered into a dark night of the soul. But with God's help, he refused to allow that bitterness to take root in his heart. And God enabled him to conquer the bitterness just as Joseph had conquered it in the Old Testament after his brothers sold him into slavery. This falsely accused young man thought that he would never again be used by God, but there are millions and millions and millions of people who can vouch for the fact that Oswald Chambers was greatly used by God before it was all said and done. To this day, his book, My Utmost for His Highest, tops the Christian bestseller list, I think second only to the Bible. Oswald Chambers struggled with bitterness and betrayal false accusation, unfair treatment, unfounded suspicion, and yet he did not repay evil for evil. He overcame evil with good. What do you think? Doormat or Christ-like? I want to read you something out of a book that I would highly recommend everybody in this room read. It's called The Insanity of God. The Insanity of God, A True Story of Faith Resurrected by Nick Ripkin. Basically, he and his wife spent a majority of their life researching and traveling and meeting people in the persecuted church 
all over the world, in even the most persecuted countries. Let me read you a little excerpt from this book at the end. He says, I know now that when Ruth and I began this pilgrimage into persecution 15 years ago, we were asking the wrong questions and seeking the wrong sort of answers. What we discovered through God's grace and with the help of hundreds of faithful people wasn't so much a strategy, a method, or a plan. Rather, it was a person, capital P. We found Jesus, and we found that Jesus is very much alive and well in the 21st century. Jesus is revealed in the lives and words and resurrection faith of believers in persecution. These believers don't just live for Jesus. They live with Jesus every day. These believers have also taught me a whole new perspective on persecution. He says, for decades now, many concerned Western believers have sought to rescue their spiritual brothers and sisters around the world who suffer because they choose to follow Jesus. Yet our pilgrimage among house churches in persecution convinced us that God may actually want to use them to save us from the often debilitating and sometimes spiritually fatal effects of our watered-down, powerless Western faith. After almost 20 years of walking through this world of persecution, he says, and talking to hundreds of believers who suffer for their faith, we can say without a shadow of a doubt that the primary cause of religious persecution in the world today is people surrendering their hearts and lives to Jesus. He says, why is it that millions of the global followers of Jesus who actively practice their faith live in environments where persecution is the norm? The first and most basic answer is that these people have given their lives to Jesus. Hear what he's saying. The second answer is that they have determined in their hearts that they will not keep Jesus to themselves. That's important. What this means is that for most believers, persecution is completely avoidable. If someone simply leaves Jesus alone, doesn't seek Him or follow Him, then persecution will simply not happen. Believers in persecution taught us another important truth, he says. The freedom to believe and witness has nothing to do with the government or political system. The freedom to believe and witness has nothing to do with the civil and political rights that might or might not be present. It isn't a matter of political freedom. It is simply a matter of obedience. The price for obedience might be different in different places, but it is always possible to obey Christ's call to make disciples. Every believer in every place is always free to make that choice. What is Satan's paramount intent? Quite simply, it is this, denying the world access to Jesus. Satan's greatest desire is for the people of this planet to leave Jesus alone. At the beginning of every day, 
We choose. It is simply a matter of identification. Will we identify with believers in persecution or will we identify with their persecutors? That's convicting questions. Quite simply, he says, we would do well to ask ourselves whether or not we are being obedient to Jesus. It is simply a matter of obedience. If he is our Lord, then we will obey him. If we do not obey him, then he is not our Lord. Perhaps the question should not be, why are others persecuted? Perhaps the better question is, why are we not 